just have you turn there and we'll jump into it here in a minute. I think um, there's different chapters of the Bible that for me are just defining theological scriptures. And uh, Romans chapter 8 is one of those. We've we've walked through that. Romans chapter 9 is one of those, particularly as it relates to the question we'll dive back into today, that question of, of Israel, what it is, what it is not, and why why the question even matters for us. Um, so last week, if you were here, we kind of dove into this. We spent a lot of time uh, back in Genesis, and I'm not going to take you back into Genesis again. I'll just recap some of that. And, uh, and hopefully that'll be helpful as we um, pull apart this scripture again. Let's start off with a prayer and then we'll dive in. Lord, as we gather together, I'm just going to ask your presence. Um, this is a word that I, my, my prayer is it just gets into us. Uh, it's defining. It helps us think about who you are as much as who we are. And Lord, the, both of those are important. So you use the scripture that way today. Uh, Lord, to to touch us and to, again, convict us and remind us of the calling that we have in you. We pray in Jesus Christ. Let's say it together, guys. Amen. All right. So I'm going to come back over here. Um, when you start chapter 9, the first three verses are captivating because they they really go to this, this burden that lives inside of St. Paul and causes Luke, me, Frequently, every time every time I study this scripture, to to really get convicted with the question: Do I have this kind of passion? Do I have this kind of passion? Um, when you look at the verses, let's just look. Let's just look at verses one to three again. Paul says, "I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience. I'm gonna I'm gonna share with you behind the scenes. Here's how I look on the outside. Happy, everything's fine. No, on the inside." I have a voice going. That's what our conscience is. Your conscience is constantly talking to you, right? His conscience is talking to him, bearing witness that he has what? Great sorrow. it's, It's heavy. This is a burden. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish that's living inside of my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Okay, so um, some of the strongest words in the Bible. I kind of come back around it this way. Um, I, I'll never forget we had a prof in St. Louis, uh, Francis Rossow, who was a kind of a, a literary that was literature was his background, uh, and he he just had a way with words. And I'll never forget coming to chapel one day and he's preaching. And he really wanted us to hear the gospel. Sometimes we hear the gospel formulaically. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. So he wanted to shift those words because we we get almost numb to them. Like, ah, Jesus died on the cross for me. And so I'll never forget, in the middle of his sermons, he he uses this pregnant pause. And uh, John, you'll appreciate this. It went something like this. On the cross, God damned. Now that'll get your attention. In a Lutheran seminary... That will freeze you in your seat because all of a sudden you hear whose voice in the back of your head? Your parents and your pastor telling you you should never use what words? But it's exactly what happened. And he was right. On the cross, God damned his own son. 
for you. I remember walking out of that chapel like it was yesterday, thinking to myself, I thought I see it differently. That, he put hell on his son for me. Look, you're not going to have to bear hell. My son will for you. Wow. These words had that impact on me, that that Paul can literally stand in front of a group of, of his kinsmen, Fellow, fellow Jews now following Jesus Christ and say, here's the burden I have. I have this burden. I'm looking at my kinsmen. We, we grew up together. We, you know, we, some of us went to, we went to seminary together. We studied the law together. We, we never saw Jesus. I didn't see Jesus. I never saw Jesus until guess what happened? You guys come on in here and it is fantastic to have you with us. Some of our uh, brothers and sisters from Sudan, thank you for being here today. Um, I've, I've told these guys, and I still still owe you a phone call. They're going to teach our congregation a lot, and I really do believe that. But I, I, I think about what does it mean to, to literally look at a Paul who's saying, I have this burden on my heart that I myself would go before God and say, God damn me. That's powerful words. Think about that. God damn me. If it means my brothers and sisters can become believers and see what I couldn't see growing up in the church, going to seminary, I never saw Jesus. And I want my brothers and my sisters to see that. What powerfully convicts me whenever I read Romans chapter 9, is that. It's, it's me not standing in front of anybody, just sitting in, sitting in, in my home or sitting in my office. And, and times where the Holy Spirit has just brought that conviction hard on me. And I think to myself, do I even have anything close to that? You know, do I really care? You really care about that neighbor across this? You don't even know their name. You can watch them and you see what they're doing. They're not living for Jesus Christ. Do you, do you care about them? Do you, do you care about that fellow worker? You, you see them. You, you know what's going on. Do you really care about them? And uh, I, I get convicted by that. And, and one of my fervent prayers in a continuous way is, okay, God, I don't have it. I don't have that conviction. And I need it because how will I ever be how will I ever be a missionary for Jesus Christ if I don't have inside of me that burden that really believes that this person that lives across the street from me or down the hall from me or uh, that I, I go to the gym with and I listen to these guys sit in the sauna room and I hear what they're saying. I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute, do I even care about them? And I, God, give me that conviction. Give me that, that desire to love these people enough to shed the cultural lie that has been imposed upon us. We're living in a culture that lies to us constantly. The cultural lie that nobody wants to hear you talk about faith. That's a lie. That it's not right for you to to shove your faith on someone else. That's a lie. It's just a lie. And what I've discovered in my life is people do want to talk about faith. It's part of who we are. They want to hear about God. And so sitting in a 
sauna in a hundred and however many degrees, you know, temperature and, and interrupting a conversation that's filled with profanity and simply throwing a question out there that causes a group of guys to go, oh, huh, what? It's a good thing to do. And so give me that conviction. I just want to start there as, as I want you just to recognize this is, this is a burden that Paul feels for his kinsmen, i.e. Israel. Now, in the course of that, burden is raised up what I think is one of the more essential questions for us as Christians today. And um, the question is, well, who actually, who is Israel? Who, who, who or what is Israel? Um, because Paul is, is speaking about his fellow kinsmen, what we would call Israelites. If I were to come in here this morning and say, okay, I want you just to jot down on a sheet of paper the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word Israel. What would you write down on a piece of paper? Okay. So someone might say, well, it's a place. There's Israel. I can find it on the map. I can go to it. Somebody might say, oh, the temple. The temple was in Israel. Somebody might say, uh, Jews. The Jews are the, are the people who live in, in Israel. All that's correct, right? But is it correct? This is the essential question that, that chapter 9 is going to deal with is who, who or what is, is Israel? Is Israel a group of people born of a natural seed? Um, we think of it that way. I'm an Israelite. Why? Because I was born an Israelite. Okay. Well, that's true. Culturally. So, socially, that's true. But what about spiritually? Is it true? Is Israel a group of people born of a natural seed, or is Israel a group of people born of a spiritual seed? Who or what is Israel? Last week we looked at this verse, 9-7. It's a key verse. Don't miss it. If you have your Bible, underline it and make sure you kind of get it into you. Here's what, here's what Paul says in answer to that question. Look at verse 7. He says, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In other words, Israel, is it, is it, are you Israel because you were born out of Abraham's seed, natural seed, because of your, your race, because of... Paul says, no. Actually not. Israel, in fact are a group of people who are born out of a spiritual seed. This is the key distinction that I want to make. Uh, and I, I kind of use this, this um, formula to do it. Uh, Israel with a small eye, Israel with a big eye. Uh, Israel with a big eye, all right, Israel with a small eye. The small eye, Israel, that's people born of a natural seed. So I could come to you and say to you today, hey, Kent, I'm an Israelite. I was born an Israelite. I'm a son of Abraham. I go, yeah, I give you that. You're Israel with a small I. Now, here's my question for you. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? No, I'm a Jew. You're not Israel. With a capital I. You're, you're an Israelite. Granted, by natural seed, you're not Israel. Not, not according to the Bible. You're not Israel. Now think about that. For Jews living in the time of St. Paul, this is kind of shocking stuff, isn't it? Because who is Israel? Well, every Jew in the time of Paul would stand up and say, oh, we are. We're, we're Israel. Paul goes, no. 
No, 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 no. Israel is not just a physical body of people. It is a spiritual body of people, i.e., Israel, capital I, are all of those people who have believed the promises of God through Jesus Christ. That's who Israel is. If I asked you today, are you an Israelite? My hope is that without hesitation, you would say, absolutely. In fact, those in this room who trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are more Israel than the people living in Israel, if that makes sense to you. Because as we go to Israel, and I still look forward to doing that, that's what we, what we discover. We discover a lot of Jewish people who have completely rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. They're, they're Israel small I. They are not Israel capital I. Now, as his scriptural evidence for kind of putting this idea on the table, uh, I remember who Paul is talking to. He's talking to a group of people who they, they were, what, they were many of them, were Israelites, small i. They were born Jews, right? They went to synagogue. They were part of the Jewish community. And then they came to know Jesus Christ. And what our contention has been in our study of, of, of the book of Romans is Paul is trying to prepare the, these Israelites to go out and to, to bear witness to Jesus to uh, both fellow Jews and Gentiles, but he needs them to see, yeah, this is this is what it means to really be Israel. It's about faith. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. So he uses some examples from Genesis. Again, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take us back into Genesis uh today, but um if you if you want to do a slow crawl through it sometime, uh Genesis fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, twenty one, twenty five, and twenty six. That body uh, of of history tells three critical stories that underscore what it means to be Israel capital I. One of the stories is the story of of, of Abram and Sarai. Right. Um, this is we're taking you back to the very beginning of things. How did Israel come into existence? Well, it starts with Abram and Sarai. God comes to Abram. Right. It says, Abram, I am going to make you the father of many nations. In fact, you love that scene in the Bible. Look up at the stars. Count them. One, two, three, four. Oh, it's going to take a while here. Seven, eight, nine. He goes, okay, you can stop now. I'm going to give you that many children. <laughs> not at once, Lord. Please, not at once, Lord. <laughs> I need to talk to my wife. Could you give me a few minutes to talk to my wife? Because, whoo, that's a lot of children. Now, he goes to talk to his wife. And what does his wife say? Ain't going to happen. <laughs> yeah, why? I'm barren. My womb won't give birth. I'm old. You're old. We're old. We're done. It ain't going to happen. The Bible says, however, that Abram believed. And, quote, it was counted to him as righteousness. Right? What does it mean for Israel to be Israel? It's about belief. Abram had no reason to believe God. There's no, you're going to do what? I, and there's, I can't have that many kids, first of all. My wife is barren. I, I don't mean to disrupt you, God, or to interrupt your, your beautiful promise and story to me. She's barren. We're old now. We're past the childbearing stage by a long shot. And uh, it's just going to happen. No, Abraham believed. Okay, God, I trust you. I'm gonna, this is going to be, I'll become the father of many nations. Now, 
That's the first story. The second story is Isaac and Ishmael. I think it's an important story. So Abram and Sarai began to wait. Okay? It's going to happen tomorrow. And I mean, she, Sarai, she went out and she bought, she bought a lot of those little, they turn blue, I think, if you're, you know what I'm talking about, those little tests. And for the first year, she's kind of taken that test. It's not blue. She says, yeah, it's not blue. A year goes by. She's like, yeah, it didn't happen. Are you sure you heard God right, Abram? I mean, you, you don't listen to me. So are you sure that you heard God right? Abram goes, no, no, I heard him. I believe him. It's going to happen. She's like, yeah, all right. And time goes on. Finally, one day they sit down at dinner. And uh, you know you're in trouble, guys, when your wife says, we need to talk. And she says, we, God needs help. I mean, he needs some help here. I know he made this promise to you, but he's actually, what he's doing, he's counting on us. That's what he's counting on us. We got to take, we got to take action. And if I'm going to have a child, here's, here's what's going to happen is, um, obviously my womb is dead. The tests keep coming back the wrong color. So what we're going to do is I've got this slave girl and the way this is going to work is I'm going to give her to you as as a wife and you go ahead and, and I'll give her some of my tests and she you guys get together and when she has a child it'll be it'll be your child I, I always I, what's, what's always just stays in my mind with that story is how many times do I do, I do that like God brings a promise to me I hear the promise. I don't wait. I won't wait for God. I'm impatient. I think, well, I better take action. I'm going to do it. And, uh, I, you know, I challenge people all the time. Just think about something going on in your, in your life, maybe even today, right now. And you're impatient. God's speaking to you. You're impatient. And so we take matters into our, our own hands. Um, we tell God in church, we tell God, oh God, I love you, Lord, Lord, I love you. I have this burden in my heart I'm putting into your hands. God, hold out your hands. Here's my burden, God. Give me that back. We take it right back. And we make it our burden. It's not our burden. It's God's burden. And uh, so what happens is um, Abram and now Hagar they have a child, Ishmael. And when Ishmael is born, both Sarah and Abram go before God. They go, okay, God, we did it. We got the child. Now I can be the father of many nations. What does God say? No. No, no, no. This is not what I promised you. I promised you I will make you the father of many nations. Not you will make you the father of many nations. I will make you the father of many nations. Oh. You, but it wasn't working, God. I mean, we waited. We, we took the test a bunch of times. It just wasn't working. I am calling you to wait on me. Stop taking my promises out of my hands and wait on me. Yes, Lord, we'll wait. And it's now in that, in that surrender 
So often this is just true in our lives. When I finally get to that place where I can say, I give up. I surrender to you, God. It's in that surrender that Isaac is born. And that beautiful Old Testament story causes us to actually hear the laughter in Sarah and Abram's home as they watch the first child born at an age that you shouldn't have children and recognize that in our surrender, God has acted and has given us joy. He's given us this son who will become the father of many nations. He's given us He's given us Isaac. It's a story about what? Faith. Who or what is Israel? Israel are those who trust and believe in God to do his promises. Not take those promises out of God's hands, but put them into God's hands and trust with absolute certainty that God will act. That's called faith. And so what, what is Paul doing? He's saying to the, the former Jews, now followers of Jesus Christ, he's saying, who or what is Israel? Israel are that body of people who trust and believe in God. They have faith in him and his promises. Third story, Jacob and Esau. So <clears throat> Isaac gets married. And it's almost like the story just repeats itself, right? And uh, now Isaac and Rebekah, they're going to have children. And um, she's found to be with twins. When they're born, their firstborn is Esau holding onto the heel is Jacob. And they would look at their two boys and they would say, Esau, because he is firstborn, will be the inheritor of the, the kingdom. No, God says again, no, you don't decide. I have decided. You don't choose. I choose. Well, wait a minute. I, I choose to follow. I, I, I have chosen to follow Jesus. No, Jesus chose you. Hmm? Yeah, he chose you. I choose. Not Not Esau. I choose Jacob. Oh, no, whoa, 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 God. Not supposed to work like that. Firstborn, he becomes the heir. Nope. I am God. All of your rules, all of your laws, all the things that you want to impose on me, no. I am God. I choose. In fact, I chose before I even created this world who I would call to become Israel. And so Jacob becomes What's his name? Israel. And so when you talk to an Israelite, how did, how did Israel become Israel? How did you get to be Israel? Most Jews, they don't, they don't know their own story. Do you realize that you became, you became Israel through, ja through Jacob, who, who was what? A, a gift of God to, to Isaac and his wife and all of it, every bit of it, is about what? One thing. Believing. Believing. And so, come back with me to verse number 8, 9, 8. And listen again to Paul as he frames this for the people who are, are listening. Go to verse 8. It says, this means that it is not 
the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as his offspring. Not the children of the flesh, but the children of what? The children of the promise. And so, come back to this question. Who or what is Israel? Not those born of a natural seed, but those born of a supernatural seed, a spiritual seed. This is who Israel is. Now, I'm going to come up to this. What? what? Okay, Pastor Luke, that's good. But why, why are you spending even any time on this? I mean, what, what difference does it make? Why is this an important question? I'm going to give you five thoughts uh, this morning. The first is actually one that, that um, Paul identifies all the way back in verse number six, and, and it is important. Out of verse 6, he's asking a question here. And the question he says is, he says, but is it, is it not as though the word of God has, has failed? All right, so one of, the, one of the questions that, you know, that this distinction answers is, when you look at Israel today, when I, when I, when I go to Israel, I'm going to look at, at some Jews uh, that are standing at what people believe is the, the west, west wall of the, the temple it has Herodian stone. Um, it's a, one of the few buildings, that's the only building that has Her- Herodian stone still still standing. And, and on the west wall, you, you write little prayers on a slip. Oh, dear God, save my brother. Dear God, whatever. You roll them up and you stick them into a little crevice there. It's interesting. I'm going to be raising the question, uh, is it truly the west wall of the temple? I'm going to be raising that question. Nonetheless, for the for the Jews, um, you look at them and you here's this person and and as you're at that west wall, you put your prayer in it, but you look over. Here's this Jewish person. Bam! Hoop hoop! Hava! It's got blood. Like, are we are we supposed to be doing that? Like, uh, should I be like banging my head against the wall? I do it quite often, pretty much so, but. Is that what you do here at this west wall? What are they doing? They're banging their head against that wall. Why? Because the Jew believes that the Messiah is yet to come. And when the Messiah comes, the Messiah will reestablish his temple on the Temple Mount. And we will once again be the chosen ones of God to rule upon this earth. And I, Luke, look at that person who is sincere, who is banging their head against the wall to the point that it's bleeding, and I say, what happened to you? What happened to you? Now, that's a, that's a, that's a Hasidic Jew who's a follower. You know what most Jews are? Atheists. Pointedly, atheists. You have conversation with them. Here's what they would say. You are born. You live. You seek to live a good life. You die. You're done. Done. That's it. That's the end of the story. Atheists. You look at, you're like, well, what happened here? And Paul is, is asking that question because guess who's asking that question? The Jews are asking that question. Like, what, what, what's, why are you having, what's this Jesus thing about? Did, did God fail? Did God fail? No, he didn't fail. Again, it all comes back to belief. Comes back to belief. There's been failure, yes. Failure to what? To believe. There's been rejection. But we reject you as our Savior. 
And so what, what Paul is trying to say is, it's not that God has failed. The question of Israel is not a question I'm asking because God has, has failed. It's a question of distinction, though, because I want you to know God has actually succeeded in raising up his, his body, true Israel. So Paul's question, did God fail? No. Second reason this question matters is, remember what Paul's trying to do. He, he's trying to raise up a mission amongst the church to reach out to the Gentiles who are not believers, who know very little about who Jesus uh, Christ is. In fact, who are watching this movement in Rome uh, with curiosity because they're listening to Christians as they gather together in homes and talk about eating someone's body. Now, Rome is a polytheistic culture. There's a lot of different religions. Um, not so many that are cannibalistic. Right? They're, they're not. What, what did you guys say you were? Christians. What do you do when you get together? We pray. We we share the word of our, our teacher. Um, we celebrate the agape meal. What's that? Well, we, we eat the body and blood of Christ. Oh, cannibals! My gosh! What a sick group of people. That's Romans, right? They, they, don't, they hear the Christians. They're not sure what in the world they are. They watch the Christians in the streets. Hi, brother. Hi, sister. Maybe, are they... Are they polygamists and cannibals? They're confused about the Christians. The Romans are. Um, Paul needs needs them to understand that Gentiles are not just a separate bad group of people. They're not different than we are. What separates us is one thing, belief. And so what are we called to do? To go out with a word that creates belief. I want you just for a minute to shift over to uh, the, the book of Galatians. And I've, I've marked a couple of verses here for you. Galatians 2, 15 and 3, 17. Um, I think that you'll see in this letter to Galatia, Paul really repeat what he's doing in, in the book of, of Romans. Because uh, he wants, again, he wants the church to know that, yeah, you, you were born an Israelite. You became a Christian. Gentiles are not different than you, however. We all have blood that goes back to Adam and Eve, and we all need one thing, and that is belief. So Galatians chapter 2, verse 15, let me just read it. It says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. <laughs> Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Go over to chapter 3 and uh, let's look at verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abram. And that the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of, of faith are blessed along with Abraham. What he's saying is, here's the job of true Israel, the job of true Israel, sons of Abraham, both physically and through faith. Our job is to go out and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's what, that's what Romans is about. It's a call to mission. 
And so this question of who is Israel becomes important. Third reason, I think this is significant, continuity. Third reason the question of Israel is important, continuity. How many of you ever had somebody say to you, hey, it seems like the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two different gods? Okay, anybody else? Fritz is back there, a couple of you. I, I have many times, okay? Sometimes in a way that's questioning uh, something that somebody reads in the Old Testament. Let me just give you an example of this. Levitical law um, kind of set boundaries around what you could eat and not eat, what was clean, what was unclean, right? Uh, when you go back and look at the precepts that are spelled out in the book of Leviticus, around what you can eat and you cannot eat. Uh, there's a long list of things that are there that I look at, and I think I don't mind not eating some of these things. Uh, bats, I just don't mind eating them. I mean, they're, they're listed in there. I don't perceive them as being that much of a delicacy. Uh, vultures, I'm not really... I, I have yet to wake up. You know what would be good? Just smoke some smoke vulture. Wouldn't that just be good? No, it wouldn't be good. Don't eat smoked vulture. What are you talking about? But then there's some things on the catfish. Whoa, hang on a minute now. Fried catfish, that's good stuff. Little catfish, little hush puppies, that's in there. We don't, we don't go by that anymore, do we? We don't live according to that Levitical law. It doesn't define who we are. So some people look at that, they're like, oh, see, God was different then than he is now. You guys can eat catfish. I'm like, well, yeah, I think there's more to it than that. Homosexuality. It's a big one. I've had this discussion many a time. The God of the Old Testament was a vengeful, angry, homogenic, homophobic, misogenic God. That's who he was. I mean, what are you talking about? Well, haven't you read your own Old Testament? I mean, take a look at what happened. Some guy, some guy's a homosexual. What do they do to him? They drag him into the center of the community. They circled him. Took stones. Stoned him to death. Angry, vengeful, homophobic God. It's a different God than the New Testament. I reject the Old Testament. I don't even want to look at that. That's bad God. Really? See what I mean? Book of Romans, I think, helps bring about this sense that, no, God, God's not a different God than in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's exactly the same God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here's why. Israel in the Old Testament is the same as Israel in the New Testament. The only difference is what? In the Old Testament, God chose a man, Abraham, through which, through whose seed he would bring out a physical body of people, the Israelites. Within that body of physical body of people, Israelites, he says, I'm going to, to reach into you. There will be a certain number of you who become what? Believers. That's Israel. Through that group of people, I will try to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, to protect that group of people, he puts around the physical body of Israel statutes, laws, precepts, and commandments. 
And I just intentionally use different words for all of those things because sometimes we as Christians group them all together like, ah, the Ten Commandments. I'm like, Ten Commandments, yes, but there's precepts, statutes, right, Levitical laws that all govern life. They're like this. I'm going to put these these boundaries around you, this physical group of people. Here's why. I want to try to protect the the group of people in you that actually are Israel because I'm depending upon you to take the gospel out to the world. And so here's this God who says homosexuality is a part of a lot of nations. Here's what's going to happen with homosexuality. You're going to get homosexuality into your, into your camp, Israel, and it's going to destroy you. you, you it will, it, I'm, I'm not going to let that happen. And so I'm setting some boundaries around you in love to protect what it means for you to be the, the nation that takes my gospel out into the world. Now, I would argue that in that moment, I don't, in that moment that I reached down, and I, I can't even picture myself doing this, I'll be, I did to be honest with you, but, I, but I, I have to. In that moment that I reached down and I pick up that rock, and I am an Israelite, and I am a believer, and there is someone who I care about and I love and they have committed this sin against God and the statutes of God say he must be stoned there's nothing in me that says boy I hate you there's nothing in me that says you're a sinner and I'm not there's nothing in me that says I hope you go to hell I weep with that rock in my hand. I cry. Because I love you. And I'm desperate for you to know who God is and to believe in Him and to trust Him for your salvation. When that rock is thrown, remember that person standing there who will die that day. It doesn't mean that they cannot, even in that moment, repent of their sin and be saved for eternity. They can't. What it means is God has said, I have set in place these statutes and these precepts and these laws to protect that body of people who is Israel, who is being called to take my word out into a wicked world, and I will protect my community. God's not different in the Old Testament than the New Testament. The only difference is he's working in the Old Testament through a physical body of people within whom there is the spiritual body of people. For that physical body of people, he sets in place what? Laws, precepts, commandments, and statutes to protect their role as the bearers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes, what happens to all of those laws and statutes and precepts? They are fulfilled. In Jesus Christ. All fulfilled. They're done. They're completed. So that in the New Testament, Israel is not different. Israel is still that spiritual body of people who trust and believe in Jesus Christ. Made so through the blood of Jesus Christ and through his will. God is not different. He's the same God, Old and New Testament. The only thing different is... Now we live not under the Old Testament laws and precepts, right? We live under what? 
the cross of Jesus Christ. Are those old laws and precepts and, and even the commandments themselves, are they are they they helpful for us as Christians? Yes, they are, right? Why? Because th- those ten commandments, they, they didn't change, but they have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. What we are clearly released from is life according to all of those Levitical laws, statutes, and precepts. We're released from it. We don't live under that today. They're, they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So when I have these conversations with people, I recognize that, yeah, God looks different in the Old Testament. He's not. It's the same God as he is in the New Testament. It's always been about whether Old or New Testament belief. Who is that trusts in God for their salvation? It's always been that. It always will be that. The big difference, I chose to work through this physical body of people in the New Testament era. I choose to work through this spiritual entity. No longer am I dependent upon a physical body of people. That's the difference. So um, to me, again, that question of Israel is significant. It, it defines the fact that when you look at the Bible, there's not discontinuity. There's continuity between the Testaments. And we can testify that the God of the, God of the Old and New Testament are exactly the same God. Um, so, important. Fourth reason it's an important question to ask, eschatology. Eschatos, end, ology, study of, study of the end times, eschatology. How, how is the world going to end? When is, what's, what's it going to look like? Right? What I, what I want you to know is that <clears throat> there's a question in theology that is consistently asked, has been asked for generations upon generations here's the question will will all of israel be saved notice i put a small eye up there will all of israel be saved um so here's kind of a, a a differentiating theological perspective there are a lot of folks in our world today within christianity who would say well because god chose chose Abraham and then through Isaac created Israel and chose to work through Israel. Because he did that, we can confidently say that in the end, when when all is said and done, when God returns, all of physical Israel will be saved. Every Jew will be saved. All the Jews, they're they're saved. Okay? Uh, To the degree that in many Christian churches today, you have campaigns to raise up money to, to send to Israel to, to support what will someday be the rebuilding of the temple on the Temple Mount. Really? Okay. You have campaigns going on in Christian churches to raise money to support these Jewish people, by the way, who reject Jesus Christ. We don't believe in Jesus? In the Messiah? Yeah, well, someday you will. Really? I don't think so. Yeah, no. <laughs> we know we're Christian. We get a Bible here. You're the chosen people. You're going to believe in them. Period. That's it. Um, here's the problem with that. If that's true, why would Paul say, I would give up my salvation for him? It's a contradiction in terms. It fails logically. If I, Paul, know, hey, look, you're the chosen people, at the end, every one of you are going to believe anyway, then guess what? I don't have the burden. 
What does Paul know? It's always been about belief. God so sent his son Jesus Christ into the world that whosoever believes in him shall be saved. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. A Jew who rejects Jesus Christ as their Savior will not be saved in the end. God does not return at the end and say, okay, all you Jews, boom, you're saved. No. Nor is there this, this uh, again, this is, this is just fantasy stuff. This, this millennialistic period of time where, where God comes, okay, Jews, you're getting a chance here. I'm going to show you that all those Old Testament things, I, that I was him. No. What happens is God returns and God says, you to the right, you to the left, you have faith, you have not done. Right? And so eschatologically, when I'm reading some of the end time theology and books and novels and all that kind of stuff, I'm amazed at how many of them simply kind of embrace this idea that, that all of physical Israel will be saved, when in reality, the whole point that Paul is trying to make in, in, in Romans is no. No, 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 no. We're going out to physical Israel with the gospel as much as we're going out to the Gentiles with the gospel. Why? Because physical Israel is rejecting Jesus Christ. And we are calling upon Israel to believe, to have faith in him. And so, is this an important question? Who is Israel? Absolutely. It's defining. Fifth reason. (laughs) I I hesitate. I'm like, I probably shouldn't put this up here because it could be offensive to somebody. And then I thought, (laughs) that's just my nature. But I don't say it lightly. I really don't. Um, to me, one of the questions that's being raised up by, by Paul for the church today is this question here. Are you Israel? Here's what I mean by that. Um, Jesus is speaking one day and he's, he's talking in parables as he liked to do. And he talks about wheat and tares and finally some terminology that us agriculturalists, people like like Brother Mike over here, understand. Like it's about time you speak in terms we can figure out. That's a weed. That's corn. Weed. Bean. Right? In fact, that's one of my joys living in Nebraska. I've come to love... Um, I tell my friends all over the world, I tell them, listen, we have a show here in Nebraska that you probably don't have. I love watching it. It's called The Weed of the Week. <laughs> well, I mean, Dallas, Texas, they don't have Weed of the Week. I'm like, you're missing out, man, because, I mean, it's a great show. You turn on your TV, here's the weed. They're like, that's the weed. I'm like, what is it? How do you kill it? <laughs> So his disciples, they get it. They get it. They're like, yeah, weeds, wheat. I got a question, Jesus. Should we not pull those weeds? Jesus says, not yours to do. Yeah, but they're messing our field up here. Not yours to do. 
When are you going to pull those weeds? I mean, Solomon's got to pull the weeds. I will. When I come. In the end. Now, typically, when we read that, that language and understand the question the disciples are, are asking, we do something that is pretty normal for Christians to do. It's called transference. We, we do it in, in, psych, in psychological terms. We do it all the time. With issues that we have, we transfer blame to someone else or we transfer ownership to someone else. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we read, oh, look at that, weed, weed, and immediately we transfer ownership of that sermon of Jesus's to people outside of the church. Where are the weeds? They're out there. Where are the weeds? They're, they're over there. And then one day you come to realize, well, wait a minute. There's weeds. There's weeds in the church. You know why? Because the church, as we define it in Western America, is what? A physical body of people, a physical place. It's the new Israel with a small eye. And we assume, well, everybody in the church, that they're, they're the wheat, they're the corn. They're the good stuff. And then one day Jesus comes along and says, No. Here's weeds in it. And, and I think in a personal way, Romans 9 always comes back to this. Is, is It causes me to, to stop and say, Wait a minute. Uh, sometimes I act like a weed. Sometimes I, I, my, I'm doing weed, weed life, Right? Am I weed or am I wheat? Being weed doesn't mean that you, you, you have the power and ability to lead a perfect life. Only Jesus did. But it always comes back to the same thing. That one thing is this belief. It's why we come together on a Sunday morning and confess our sins before the Lord Jesus and say to him, I've acted like a weed all week long and you probably should pull me. Throw me in a pile and burn me up. But God, I trust you. I believe in you. And I believe that Jesus, he, he was pulled for me. And it's belief that causes us to, to belong to Jesus Christ. And if the book of Romans causes me to say, mm, what's going on in me? That's a good thing. It's a good thing. Because I think that's what the Bible is meant to do. It's meant to stop us and cause us to pause and look at our lives and ask the questions. And what does it mean to have belief in Jesus Christ? It doesn't mean that I, I check a box one day and say, I got baptized, I'm saved, and I'm on my way. It means that every single day of my life, I surrender to this God and pray to him that he kill me this day in order that I might live anew. And uh, so I think that the question of Israel is a personal question yeah here's another reason that I think we need to pay attention to this Israel question chapter 9 verse 14 let's go back to chapter 9 verse 14 I'm going to start it and then I'll close this off today but I want to at least put it on the board this is a, a weighty section as, as this whole question of Israel is being asked, verse 14 says, what, what shall we say then? 
Now, remember the question that's, or the, the statement that's just been made. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. It goes back to this story, right? What is God saying? That he hated Esau? I hate you, Esau. No. What is he saying? I chose Jacob to be the one who will become the father of many nations. I didn't choose Esau. Hatred here is not an emotional response on the part of God towards Esau. God loves Jacob. God loves Esau. I chose Jacob. I did not choose Esau to be the father of nations. And so verse 14 is, whoa, well, then what should we say? What are we saying then? Is God unjust? How dare you choose someone, God? How dare you choose someone? Well, no, Paul says, by no means is God unjust. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's back to belief. Why do you believe? Oh, there's that word again. Election. You do not believe in Jesus Christ because you're smart enough to. You do not believe in Jesus Christ because you're better than someone else. You do not believe in Jesus Christ because you have figured it out more so than anyone else. You believe in Jesus Christ because God chose you. Is that? Well, then God must be unjust. No. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. I spoke those words, by the way, to Moses. Then it gets complex. I'm going to share it with you, then we'll close. We'll come back to it next week. Here's where the complexity comes in. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, Ooh, Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Boy, this is tough stuff. Wait a minute. Two weeks ago, we talked about election. We talked about those who are predestinationists and those who are double predestinationists. And I shared with you that we, we believe that God, before the world even began, sat in place his entire plan for salvation, inclusive of those who would come to know him as Savior. That does not mean that God, I believe, scripturally, it does not mean that God says, you, I will save. You, I will send to hell. No. No, 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 no. It's a double positive, not double negative. I will have compassion upon those whom I will have compassion. Positive. I will have mercy upon those whom I will have mercy upon. Well, then what about Pharaoh? Didn't God harden his heart? What about Pharaoh? Does God choose some and condemn to hell others Pharaoh there he sits in that chair God hardened his heart he didn't he didn't harden his heart God hardened his heart what is that about it's a tough question but quite answerable and so I'll encourage you to stay tuned to the same bat channel at the same bat time and we'll deal with it next week
Let's pray. Lord God, as we uh, close out this morning, thank you for time. Wading through some weighty words, Lord, they um, have meaning today. Whether it's me asking myself, Lord, why, why do I act like a weed? Or whether it's, it's recognizing that you're, you're not different. You're the same God today, yesterday, and forever. Old and New Testament. Lord, you've called us to be Israel. You've brought us to be Israel. And help us to bear the weight, the burden of what that really means. Because until we do, Lord, we can't be Israel. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for